We are going to go to Mark 7. Mark 7 this morning. We're going to cover 23 verses, Lord willing. While you're turning there, I want you to imagine with me that I have built a fence. And not just a fence around the backyard. Lots of people do that. I am building a fence around my entire property. I've had it surveyed, and I have it exactly on the property line. And it's not any wimpy six-foot privacy fence. It is a 20-foot fence. It is an outstanding fence. And I like my fence. Now, you have that in your mind. It, it's, I have part of it painted. Actually, I have the uprights are painted, and, and then the, the slats are stained beautiful. It's great. High-quality fence. But I want you to imagine that I take care of my fence. I repaint, I replace boards if they rot. And I take excellent care of my fence for years. As a matter of fact, a couple of decades. And the only problem is that I don't do anything for my house or my yard. So it is completely overgrown. As a matter of fact, around year 20, my entire house caves in. <laughs> but I have the best fence anywhere around. Exactly. I, it allows me to keep up the appearance, right? Which is the whole point. The Mishnah was completed in the second century AD, and it's a compilation of Jewish oral laws. And there is a statement in that Mishnah that says tradition is a fence around the law. Kent Hughes said that tradition, as the Jews saw it, protected God's holy word and assisted his people in keeping it. And there's an element of truth there. That's not a wrong statement, but it's certainly an incomplete statement. So I want you to think today about fences. We're going to talk about the heart as well, of course. But for right now, I'm going to read our passage. Hopefully you've had a chance to find it. Would you stand, please? And I'm going to read the first 23 verses of Mark chapter 7. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches, then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. And he said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corban, that is, dedicated to the temple, and you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect 
through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. And when he had called all the multitude to him, he said to them, hear me, everyone, and understand, there is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. So he said to them, are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. And he said, what comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Let's pray together, please. Our Father, these are your words. And I pray that you would help us to understand and believe them and obey them today. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to read and study together your word in our language. We thank you that we have such easy access to it. But Lord, let that easy access and familiarity not make us less sensitive to it. Lord, you say that your word is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword and that it can open us up and it can pierce to our innermost parts. And Lord, you see our hearts this morning. Everything we have is naked and open to you. So Lord, I ask that you would examine us and help us to examine ourselves. That your Holy Spirit would point out areas in which we're not consistent with your gospel of grace. That we are not loving others as we love ourselves. Ways in which we are worshiping something else ahead of you. Lord, I ask that you would reveal to us whatever wickedness may have crept into our hearts today. That we may receive the washing of the water by your word. That you would wash us and that we would be whiter than snow. Lord, we thank you for your grace and for your forgiveness and restoration. And Lord, we ask that you would use this passage to do that in our lives today, that you would give us ears to hear and that you would give me clarity of thought and speech that your word would come through loud and clear because you, Holy Spirit, are directing what I say. That's what I'm asking for, Lord, your power to do what your word and only your word can do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I think it's fun not that you're going to think it's fun. I think it's fun that we got to this passage on the Sunday before Thanksgiving because we get to talk some about tradition and we get to talk some about food. And that seems like a good time of year to discuss that. You probably have traditions, Thanksgiving, Christmas, other times of year. There are ways that you do something. Uh, birthdays, if you celebrate birthdays in your family, you have an idea of this is how we do it. This is what we decorate. This is, we have this kind of cake, this kind of food, whatever the case may be. We, we get together with these people. Well, we're going to talk about traditions that were religious traditions of that time. And we're going to talk about the people, the scribes and Pharisees, who 
prided themselves in knowing and keeping those traditions and passing them on from generation to generation. And they looked good. We've talked about the Pharisees before. They, they looked like they had everything together. That they knew how to dress. They knew what to say. They knew where to go. They knew what not to do. They knew which day not to do it on. They knew it all. And yet they didn't have a close heart relationship with God. It looked great on the outside, not so good on the inside. And that is my one and only main point. The, the main idea for you this morning is that people care about the outward appearance, but God cares about the heart. And when I say heart, let's just get this in our minds right from the start. I mean your mind, your emotions, the seat of your emotions, your motivations inside you. What down inside you helps you know what to think and tells you what to do. That's what I mean by your heart, not, not the blood pumper. We need that too. But when the Bible talks about our heart, mind, will, emotions, it's all tied together, your personhood. And as I studied this, as I read through it again and again this week, I noticed a bunch of comparisons in this passage. So I, I have a chart here. You don't have to write it down because it's on the back of your bulletin. So if you wanted this information, just flip your bulletin over. It's there. But we're going to see some comparison between the lips and the heart and the commandment and the tradition and Moses and the Pharisees and the word of God versus tradition and the outside versus the inside and the heart versus the stomach. Heart figuratively, stomach literally. And that plays out through these verses. So the question I'd like you to ask yourself this morning is where is your heart? There's an old gospel song coming into my head right now. Is your heart right with God? That's the question of the hour. Where's your heart? And is it in close communion with the Lord? Let's go back to verse 1. We're going to work our way through a verse or two at a time. In verse 1 it says, Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, that's to Jesus, having come from Jerusalem. Now, we, we know who the Pharisees are. In fact, I've shared this definition that I love so much from the Jesus Storybook Bible, that in those days there were some extra super holy people. At least that's what they thought, and they were called Pharisees. That's a great way to describe this group. They were well respected. It started off so well. A couple hundred years before Jesus, this group was reacting. They were the conservative part of the religious establishment of the day. They believed in more than just the first five books. They believed that God could work supernaturally and that he used angels and that there was a resurrection. They believed all that. All the conservative doctrinal things that we would hold to, for the most part, they would have held to. But as time went on, they become more and more caught up in the externals, the religion. They were all about looking right. Now, we've talked about the Pharisees before. The last time we saw the Pharisees in Mark, it was Mark 3, 6, and there they were seen plotting the death of Jesus. So it says here, the Pharisees and some of the scribes, originally they started off so well also, they were copyists. They didn't have the UPS store or FedEx Kinko's to go to to run some stuff off to make copies or to print things at home, everything was copied by hand. And they were very diligent. They had processes for that. So they started off very well as being copyists of the scriptures. 
And from there, around the time of Ezra the scribe, remember Ezra and Nehemiah, from then on, they also became authorities on what it meant. They were interpreters of the law. In fact, by the time we get to the time of Jesus, they were sometimes called lawyers because they were supposed to be the experts on what does this mean? So I found in John Phillips' commentary this comparison, this description of these two groups, and I, I think it makes sense for me. I think it will for you too. The scribes were the custodians of the text of Scripture. The Pharisees were custodians of the traditions of Scripture. So the Pharisees had all the externals, all the extra rules. This is how we're going to do it. This is how we're going to apply the law. They were taking something that was intended to be good and they had made it oppressive. We've talked about the Sabbath multiple times already. So I won't go back through that. But it says here that this group of Pharisees and scribes had come from Jerusalem. So these bigwigs came 80, 85 miles from Jerusalem. And when we read this in our modern idea of what things are, it seems like they walked 80 miles to tell Jesus and his disciples to wash their hands. That seems absurd. And that's not all there was to it. But that, that's their idea. They, they may have heard even that Jesus had fed 5,000 people in the wilderness. And there's no way everybody obeyed the ceremonial washings out there could be related to that because that's where mark puts it in the order of his gospel but there are two words that keep coming up as we continue in this passage we're going to see one in verse two one in verse three the words are defiled and tradition be on the lookout for those words as we go through defiled and tradition you're going to see them both verse two says now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled that is unwashed hands they found fault and that's that's really the reason they had come they came to see what they could criticize, to see what they could trap Jesus in. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. There's tradition in verse 3. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there were many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. So when it says unwashed hands, it's not dirty hands. They're not concerned about germs here but they're concerned that the hands aren't washed in the special way according to the rules, the tradition of the elders. So they wash their hands in a special way. What's that? It's a ceremony in which someone would have had to pour water, and you would start off holding your hands something like this, we think, so that they could pour from the fingertips down to the wrist. And once that has happened, then you have to turn it the other way, and somebody pours more water. And then with the fist, we think maybe that they were rubbing the palm of their hands with their fist. Well, obviously, that's not going to get a lot of germs off, but that's how they did it to be ceremonially clean. They believed in order to be right with God, and there are all, all sorts of strange ideas and superstitions. They actually believed that there was a demon that would be on their hands if they didn't do this, and, and then they would eat the food, and all of a sudden, they would be influenced by a demon. There's no biblical basis for that, but that's what some of them taught, and that's how serious they were about it. They wouldn't eat. There was one scribe who was imprisoned, and he was lauded because he took the water they gave him to drink and refused to drink it because he had to do his ceremonial washing. So he nearly died of dehydration, and they thought that that was great. We think, why would you do that? That's how serious they were. They were very committed, very um, religious, dedicated. So this was very important to them to wash in this special way, especially when they had been out in the marketplace. They may have come in contact with a Gentile or something unclean. So they felt like they had to do this before they ate, and that's what they expected everyone else to do. They had other things that they washed. They would do this, by the way, between courses of the meal. 
they would need to do their washings again. They washed cups, pitchers, copper vessels. You young people in the room, this is not your time to. But whom did he tell? The priests, under certain circumstances. But they decided, we're going to apply it to everybody. Everybody should wash their hands a special way so that we can be ceremonially clean and do it God's way. And they were adding to what God had said. They were over-applying what God had said. Why did God want the priests to do that? He wanted them, the, the, the whole sacrificial system, if I can simplify it, would be for them to understand the ugliness of sin. Had to bring animals to sacrifice to understand that death is the punishment for sin. And the idea of atonement and covering of sin. So we have this entire system, much of which, start reading Leviticus and, and seems so strange to us, God put it in place for them to understand that they needed their hearts to be cleansed. It wasn't about their hands. It was about their hearts. So when it says the tradition of the elders, that was a really big deal to them. One rabbi said, he who expounds the scripture in opposition to the tradition of the elders will have no part in the world to come. If you don't keep the verbal tradition, the oral tradition of the elders, beyond whatever the, the Bible says in writing, then you don't have eternal life. That's what he was saying. The Mishnah that I quoted from earlier also says, it is a greater offense to teach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis, oral tradition, than to contradict scripture itself. Now, not all traditions are bad. You're probably going to follow some traditions. We, we express thanksgiving to God as part of our thanksgiving celebration. I think we should do that in some form. That's our tradition. That's not spelled out in Scripture. Being thankful, expressing gratitude to God in general, not just one day of the year, that's in the Bible. That's what we should do. But how it plays out, that's not the big deal. But where's your heart? Are you adding to Scripture? Are you elevating your tradition above Scripture. So I have one slide with the math symbols that is intended to give you the entire sermon in a nutshell. Tradition, if you've never seen that sign before, is not greater than Scripture. That's where they were stumbling. Tradition is not greater than Scripture. Tradition is not equal to Scripture. It is not the same as. It is different from Tradition is less than Scripture. Tradition in itself is not necessarily bad, but it is not on the level with the written Word of God. Verse 5, we've had our explanation from Mark, probably writing to Gentiles, specifically Romans. So he's explaining to them, here's what they did, here's how they washed, verse 5 now. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? Why? They come and ask this question of Jesus about his disciples, but really they're accusing him. What are they accusing him of? Of not following the tradition of the elders and letting his, in fact, teaching his disciples not to follow the tradition of the elders. What's the main point? People care about outward appearance, but God cares about the heart. And Jesus responded to them. They're bringing accusations. They're asking questions. He responded to them the same way he did before when the Pharisees found fault with the disciples for plucking and eating the heads of grain on the Sabbath. You remember we covered that before? How did Jesus respond then? He didn't defend his disciples. 
He didn't argue with the Pharisees. Instead, he quoted Scripture. He told them what was written, not what they'd passed down for generations verbally. So first he quoted Isaiah, and then he quoted Moses, because how are they going to argue with the law and the prophets, right? So that's what he gives them. Verse 6, he answered and said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Some of the translations say beautifully. Isaiah described you to a T, we might say. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain, they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This is our first comparison, the lips versus the heart. You may know that hypocrites were originally play actors. Back at this time, people would play multiple roles, and they would often use a mask, a happy mask, a sad mask, and that's how you would know what character I was being. So hypocrisy is with a mask. They're acting. They're pretending. They're spiritual phonies following the traditions of men but without a pure heart their heart is far from me and yes it's easy for us to point fingers at them it's easy for us to see everything they were doing wrong we've sung three songs together this morning we've prayed we've read scripture so ask yourself don't tell me but ask yourself were you engaged in worshiping God? Or were you just going through the motions? You're here this morning, and praise God that you're here. I'm glad that you're here. But are you here because this is your habit, or this is what your family does, or because you got dragged here, or because you had to serve in a, in a ministry? Or are you here because you want to worship God? What I'm getting at is, where is your heart? Where is your heart this morning? Because Jesus said, Quoting Isaiah, in vain they worship me. Emptiness, pointlessness. How do they do it? Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Not everything, God, God spelled out a lot, but he didn't spell out every aspect of life, not even for them, as detailed as the law is. He didn't give them everything. He intends us to apply what he's given. But they over-applied. They went beyond. They, they made it hard. Um, someone said, the scriptures don't command ritual washing before meals. If you want to do it, fine. Worship the Lord. If you don't want to do it, fine. Worship the Lord. But don't get bent out of shape if someone else doesn't follow your man-made rule. What are some of our traditions? We gather on Sunday. We gather on Sunday morning. That's what they did in the book of Acts. They gathered on Sunday. They probably gathered on Sunday evening at that point. Some churches have multiple services or a Saturday night service midweek. That's fine. That is a tradition. The Bible doesn't say you must gather at this time on Sunday. We go, with very few exceptions, we go verse by verse, chapter through, by chapter, through books of the Bible. And my goal is to 
exposit, expose, show you the text and what it means week after week. That is the style of preaching that I like the best. I have a personal conviction about it. Guess what? It's a tradition because there are other people who love God and love his word who go about it differently. And here's what that would look like. If I were being like these scribes and Pharisees, then I wouldn't be here with you right now. I would be going to all the other churches in the area and condemning and finding fault with any of the pastors who aren't preaching it the way I want to preach it. That's kind of what they did. That's their attitude. So traditions can be wonderful things, but let's try to be very clear on what the Bible says and do that. And where the Bible doesn't say X, Y, and Z, don't try to enforce X, Y, and Z on somebody else. Let's apply it. Let's have our own convictions and be fully persuaded about them. But how are we going to know what is and isn't in the Bible? Yeah, I think we have to open it and read it and study it and be like the Bereans and find out, is that really what it's saying? If I preach it, please don't take my word for it. Dig in. That was too hearty. Don't say amen. (laughs) I know. I'm just kidding. Yes, please search the scriptures and see whether what I'm saying is in there. And if it's not, reject it. And if that's the way I start doing it every week, reject me, okay? We gotta see what is in the book and stick to that. Verse eight, for laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition, there that is again, the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. This is commandment versus tradition. Laying aside the commandment of God. The picture that Jesus is offering is is quite simple to follow you're putting down the commandment of god so that you can pick up the tradition of men you can't hold them both like a little kid trying to pick it all up all at once doesn't work so i have to put something down i finally figured that out i I have to put something down i'm going to put down god's commandments so i can hold my traditions they lay aside the commandment of god verse 9 he said to them all too well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, that is, a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. So we have two more comparisons, Moses versus the Pharisees, the word of God versus tradition. He's quoting Moses. He's quoting Moses from Exodus 20 and 21. What's the fifth commandment? Honor your father and mother. And it goes on from there. Part of honoring your father and mother, they didn't have a social security system. They didn't have a retirement, a 401k. They didn't have anything like that. So as your parents got older and they couldn't work in the same way, primarily agricultural society, you took care of your parents. Maybe they... Maybe you lived in the same house already, but you took care of them. You were required to provide for them financially. That was what Moses said, which means that's what God said. This is from the Ten Commandments. Hard to argue with those, isn't it? So Jesus quotes one of the Ten Commandments. Then he quotes the next chapter, Exodus 21, to say how seriously God took this. Because if someone was openly rebellious against his parents, what happened? Stone him. Kill him. 
That's how seriously God took this command. But what did the Pharisees do? What did the scribes do? They said, here is the fifth commandment. We can't get all the money we want for the temple if we hold this. So we're going to set this down over here, and now we have this law of Korban. And what that means is that my parents are getting up in age, and I need to help them, but I've thought about it. I've prayed about it. I'm going to dedicate everything that I have to the temple. Which sounds really good, doesn't it? Mom and Dad, sorry. I've dedicated everything I have to God for the temple. And that, of course, sounded really good to the people who were in charge of the temple. But it wasn't even that. It was more like making out a will that when I die or when God specifically shows me to give it to the temple, that's when I'll do it. And until then, I'm just going to kind of hang on to it. And sorry, Mom and Dad. That's what they were doing. They were taking, here's the commandment. Don't like that. Got to make my own rules for the benefit of the temple. And what does Jesus say? You are making the word of God of no effect through your tradition. Warren Wiersbe in his commentary points out this sequence that they are placing less and less value. They are devaluing God's word. Teaching their doctrines as God's word. That's how they started. They're going to teach their own as if it were God's word. And then can't do that because something has to win out. So we're going to lay aside God's word and then out and out reject God's word. And then what is the result? Robbing God's word of its power. Making it of no effect. Making the word of God null and void. Here's my Bible. I'm going to take a big red stamp and I'm going to put void on it. And that's what they were doing. So Jesus has said all he's going to say to the Pharisees and scribes. How did he respond to them? He didn't defend himself. He didn't defend his disciples. He didn't even argue with them. He said, here's what Moses said. Here's what Isaiah said. But now he says, hey, gather closer. The multitude is there. They probably have been keeping a a safe distance while Jesus talked to the religious leaders. Jesus invited the crowd closer, and verse 14 says, When he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand. There's nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has to hear, ears to hear, let him hear. We're looking at the difference between outside and inside now. Imagine with me for a minute a grandfather clock. You've got a big old clock. And it doesn't keep the right time anymore. But what would you think of me if day after day I just kept resetting it? It gets behind, so I just keep advancing and I keep setting it. I keep winding it and and pulling its chains and whatever it it needs. Is that going to help anything? Why? Because I'm going to have to keep doing it. The problem is inside. I can keep setting it to the right time all I want, and it's not going to stay there because there's something fundamentally wrong inside that I don't know how to fix because I don't know all the gears and and the inner workings there. That's what Jesus is saying. There's nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him. They knew all the dietary laws. You can look at them yourself. Leviticus chapter 11. You can figure out which bugs are okay to eat. You can figure out which animals are okay to eat according to the dietary laws of the Old Testament. 
We're not under those anymore. We'll get to that. But there's nothing that you can eat that's going to defile you. Someone explain it this way. A Jew who ate unclean food was defiled not by the food itself, but by disobeying God's command. It's not about your hands. It's not about the food. It's about your heart. Now, that's not to say Jesus is comparing it to food. That's the context. Don't take it out of context. It's not that, oh, I can view all the pornography I want to because nothing from outside me will defile me. That's not what Jesus was saying. He was saying food is neutral. The food isn't the problem. The heart that would disobey God's command is the problem. So he says the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. The thoughts turn into words or actions, and that's what defiles. Even if I'm doing all the right things on the outside. Verse 17, he talks to a different group. So first off, he's talking to the religious leaders. Spends a long time quoting scriptures to them. Then he has this little explanation to the multitude, but now he's going to talk to his disciples. Verse 17, when he entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. And parable there is more of a generic form. It's just an illustration. Verse 18, so he said to them, are you thus without understanding also? Do you not have a clue either? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all food. So now we have the heart versus the stomach. You're, if you have a different translation, you may have that statement about purifying all foods as, as a separate sentence rather than part of the question. And that very well may be the way it, it's supposed to be. So all those laws in Leviticus 11 on what foods we can eat, what foods we can't eat, he's turning all that on its head. And Mark, if that's an editorial comment, and I think it is, he's looking with hindsight. He, he can look back and say, oh, Jesus was using this statement to overturn all the food laws, which was radical, which was very unexpected, I'm sure, to them at that time. He is declaring all foods clean for believers, for his people. But they didn't catch on right away, did they? You can read about Peter going to Joppa, and he had that vision on the rooftop and the sheet that came down and he said oh i would never eat anything unclean i've never eaten anything unclean that's acts 11 or 10 10 and then acts 15 they're still talking about it when they go to the jerusalem council so it took a while for them to understand this but at that point jesus was saying it's not about the food don't worry about the food worry about the heart verse 20 and he said what comes out of a man that defiles a man for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, and evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Out of the heart. Out of my heart come thoughts, words, and deeds that are sinful. Because my heart at its core, is sinful. You say, oh, Bob, you're being too hard on yourself. No, I'm not, and nobody actually said that, huh? Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 17, verses 9 and 10. 
The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. See, I look good in my own eyes. But those around me can see the sin, the false motives, whatever spiritual struggles I may be having are probably a lot more obvious to other people because we're blind. We are blinded to our own sin so often. Why? Because our heart inside is deceived so much of the time. It is easily deceived. I'll say it that way. So Jesus says, out of the heart proceed evil thoughts. Evil thoughts become evil deeds. If you're thinking about sinning, you're going to sin. Not really that hard. Jesus, in intensifying the law back in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, that's the same as adultery. If you hate someone in your heart, that's the same as murder. A different way, he's saying the same thing, that the sin is proceeding out of the heart. So how we think matters. What we allow our minds to think about matters. I can't be thinking about anything that could become an idol, good, bad, indifferent. We, we would probably differentiate in our minds thinking about the lunch I'm going to have in a few minutes, thinking more about the lunch, thinking all day about food, that could become a problem. Certainly, pornography, playing things in my mind, that's a huge problem. The things I want to have, the bigger house, the nicer, newer car, wh- whatever it is that you would think about or even fantasize about, anything that begins to rule my heart is an idol. And the thought processes. Send us down the wrong path. If you have never learned this verse, then you have a homework assignment, okay? Philippians 4, 8 tells us, on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul wrote what we should think about. Because it's not enough for me to tell you, do not think about jelly donuts. Whatever you do, do not think about jelly donuts. Stop thinking about jelly donuts. In fact, do not ever think about another jelly donut. What are you doing? You're repeating the same idea in your mind. Oh, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to eat that. I'm not going to watch that. I'm not going to listen to this. I'm not going to read that. We have to replace it. That's what Ephesians, elsewhere in that chapter, teaches us, that we have to put off concerning the old things, be renewed in our minds, and put on the new. Put off the old, put on the new, be renewed in between. So what are we supposed to put on? This is it. This is how our minds should be thinking. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. In my own mind and heart, I'm thinking right now that I'm putting on a guilt trip that you need to go memorize this verse. That would be a tradition. So if the Holy Spirit leads you to memorize this verse, if you haven't, then please go do it. It's a good verse. It's one that we should spend time thinking through. It's a great filter. Should I do this? Should I not do this? Is it true? 
Is it praiseworthy? Now, I'm not going to go through some of your concerns that I'm going to define every one of these terms. I'm going to be here forever. I'm not. I will say simply that this is not an exhaustive list, but I think it's a comprehensive one. Jesus starts off saying evil thoughts, which is where all this starts. So if you will, that's the umbrella. And then there's a list of six that are plural and six that are singular. I don't know that there's anything too significant about that, but that's how they're organized in the Greek and in the English. So there's a list of things that are bad. We have in the list adultery and fornications covering any type of sexual sin. Lewdness is unrestrained. So it's a lack of self-control. An evil eye isn't talking about the eye, just like we've been talking about figuratively the heart. The evil eye is one that is covetous. I want something. I'm envious of somebody who has something I want. Warren Rizzi said, food ends up in the stomach, but sin begins in the heart. So the food we eat is digested and eliminated, but sin remains, and when it remains, it produces defilement. That's true defilement. That's what to worry about, my heart. Not whether or not I can eat bacon. My heart. Those of you here this morning, you're here at church regularly, and I praise the Lord for that. But let us not fall into the trap of being concerned about the outward, that I be where everybody expects me to be, and I do what I, I say, I wear, I watch, I read. Nothing wrong with doing those things. We need to have personal standards and convictions, but we need to base them on the Bible and we need to know the difference between what's in the Bible spelled out specifically and what I have drawn as a conclusion so that we know whether to apply it to somebody else. In Jesus' words, the fifth commandment applies to everybody. Giving a gift to the temple or not, providing for your family or not, that falls under the commandment. So we should do that and, and give to God. How about other words of Jesus? Give to God the things that are God's. People care about the outward appearance. You can look really good to everybody else. God knows and he cares about the heart. So where is your heart this morning? Ask yourself these questions. Are you acting apart? Coming to church, looking like you think you're supposed to look, saying what you're supposed to say, going through the motions, but your heart is far from God? Have you gotten hung up on building and maintaining your fence that you think everybody needs to obey the same rules that I am abiding by? Do you get disgruntled by other believers who don't keep your rules? Are you looking down on others who in your mind aren't as holy as you are? I'm finishing with just a, a few verses here. One is that if you've never come to Christ, if you're not a believer in him, this is a prayer from Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart. It's for a believer to pray or an unbeliever to pray. God, give me a new heart. Wipe my slate clean. Wash me and I'll be white as snow. Believers, Deuteronomy says, seek the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul. That's what we should be doing with our heart. Seeking God, seeking the things of his kingdom. 
seeking his righteousness. Another prayer, this one from Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Why do we need to pray that? Because I'm so easily deceived. My heart is deceitful, and I need God, the Holy Spirit, who knows me, who sees my heart, to show me. So search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties, my worries, my fears, and see if there's any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Where's your heart this morning? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I don't know your heart, but God does. And if there's anyone that God is speaking to you in a specific way about a specific matter this morning, then I would urge you to obey him. It may mean that you need to stop doing something you've been doing. It may mean you need to start doing something you haven't been doing or haven't done in a long time. It may need an, an attitude adjustment. It may mean you need to humble yourself, get down off your high horse in the way you've been looking down even secretly on other people. Whatever he's leading you to do, would you obey him? Would you do it? Our Father, continue to work in our hearts that we would sense what your Holy Spirit is leading us to do and that we would do it. Lord, let us not be hearers of, only hearers of the word, but let us be doers. Lord, if we're hearers only, James says we're deceiving ourselves. So Lord, let us not come to your word and go away unchanged over and over. Lord, convict us where we have been proud or judgmental toward others. Convict us where we are being duplicitous, that we have a very different heart from the persona, the way we live and talk and act. Lord, work in us what we cannot do ourselves. Give us the grace to put away sin, to be renewed by your word itself, and to put on the good works of righteousness that you have ordained for us to walk in. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.